0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered
1: by Wharton. From the campus of the Wharton School in San
0: Francisco, this is Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Rob Connipierre. Hello and welcome to Launchpad on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Coniebeer. I'm broadcasting live from Wharton's San Francisco campus. I'm thrilled to welcome to the show, Yana Corpella. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for the invitation, Rob. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, so it's exciting to have you here. You have accomplished quite a lot for being 24. You're Chief of Investor Operations at the enormous European startup event Slush, It's held each year in Helsinki, yeah, and it's actually held right at the beginning of winter. It's right before winter solstice, which is pretty crazy. I'm sure we're going to talk about that. And you're also the co-founder of Europe's first student-led venture capital fund called Wave Ventures. yeah. But I'd love to start off by hearing about slush. Could you share with the audience what slush is?
1: Yeah. Should I perhaps start with the kind of background story of slush? So um, back in 2008, there was... uh, group of six Finnish entrepreneurs that wanted to have a gathering for basically the entrepreneurship community of, of Helsinki and also other parts of Finland. Uh, the problem that they wanted to tackle in the beginning was, or one of the pro- problems they wanted to tackle was the lack of international venture capital money. So basically if you have an event then it's easier for, for the investors to come come to Helsinki and see all the relevant cases in a few days instead of spreading them out uh, on different trips. So basically... And this they, is
0: six Finnish...
1: Students. Oh, no. Entrepreneurs. The original founders were six entrepreneurs. So they basically have or held the event and organized it and found it and run it for the first three years. Then in 2011, uh, their own company started to grow and they handed the event over to students. So that's basically when that kind of magic started to happen. So from 2011 until 2014, the event doubled in the amount of attendees every year. So in, in 2014... Uh, I think we had around 14,000 attendees. Uh, last year, in 2017, we have had around 20,000 attendees. And wow, that's huge. Yeah, it's getting quite big. And Helsinki is how far north? It's quite far north.
0: It's pretty far north. Yeah. I mean, it's well on the way to Santa's workshop.
1: Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly.
0: And that time of year, how, how long is it light during the day?
1: So it depends. Like, If you go north enough, there's basically no daylight in Finland at all. But I think in Helsinki, the sun rises probably around 10 a.m. and then then sets around 3 p.m. So there's no need to spend any time outside. So you can happily spend all your hours awake at slush.
0: So I had never heard of a conference. When I heard of slush, I had never heard of a conference that said, you know what? We want to do it at one of the darkest periods of the year. It always seems to be a tropical location, a summer location, somewhere that's warm.
1: Does it work? Does this formula work? Um, I think I actually have to ask that question from you, Rob, because you were there um, last year. So what do you think? Does it work? I, I think it's, it's interesting because it's contrarian.
0: Yeah. And to a certain extent, when you're going that far north and you know there's going to be snow, it's the name of the conference, obviously. Exactly, it's a very exactly. slushy time of year. Yeah. You're kind of curious, what is it like to be in a
1: place where it's dark for so long? I think like... For a lot of even Europeans. Uh, so Hels- Helsinki is not that bad, but like, like from, from friends that have lived, for example, in Lapland, the northern part of Finland, um, the rumor says that they, they go crazy during oh, the summer because okay. they basically don't sleep in three months because there's like one day that lasts over two months and then they, they get depressed during the winter. Okay. So it's kind of a balance between crazy and, and depressed. But, but to be honest, in, in Helsinki or in, in central Finland, it's, it's not too bad um, but, of course, like whenever you, you, for example, come here to sunny California, it's, it feels a lot better.
0: It's a little you know, different, isn't
1: it? It, it is. <laughs> so, coming back to Slush, yeah. you said, I think, about 20,000 attendees? Yeah, exactly. So, 20,000 attendees, that includes a bit over 2,500 startup companies. Uh, and out of the, each company, the, the average amount of, of founders or employees that attend are, is a bit over 2. Uh, so, that means basically a bit over 5,000 founders or early employees. And then also a bit over 1,500 investors, including venture capitalists, limited partners, corporate VCs, angel investors, and also M&A people from from corporations. So why don't you share what it
0: looks like when you arrive in Helsinki, check into a hotel. It's a beautiful town, old town. It's actually a very walkable city, as I recall, set on a huge harbor.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: But maybe talk about what happens when you go into the conference center. What does it look like?
1: Oh, that's actually... It's really hard to describe by words, but, but one one kind of description that I personally like is that um, Slash is kind of Burning Man meets Dead. So so we have the quality of, of Dead in terms of speakers, but we have the production and kind of the weirdness of Burning Man. So it kind of feels like you walk into a rock concert. So, so the venue is... Well, you walk past the astronauts, I remember. Last exactly. Year. You had people
0: standing out in the falling snow wearing spacesuits.
1: Yeah. That's kind of like a welcoming, welcoming outfit. Whose idea was that to put the spacesuits out there? I guess it was a marketing stunt for for one of
0: the local companies. Okay, so you walk past the spacesuits, and then you go in, and you have the largest coat check that I have ever seen at any major conference, including CES. Yeah, yeah, and the lines are super short, right? They are. It's very well run. It's it's very interesting. So you go into this enormous area. It's a big convention center for anybody who's been in a convention center. And you see these different stages. And there are
1: how many major stages? So so basically we we have had four and three stages usually. Or four four or three stages.
0: Okay. Yeah. And what do each of the stages look like? Because they're they're wild. The production is amazing that you put together with these stages.
1: Um, so basically each stage have has a bit different wipe, but I think like one interesting interesting fact is that for example, last year the fireside stage had an actual fire on the stage, so if you would have a fireside set, you would basically have it around a real fire.
0: Yeah, so you have the fireside stage. Yeah, and you have—I don't know if you could do this in the U.S., but literally, it—it it is a fire. Exactly. And I remember because I was on this stage, it actually started to get hot on <laughs> yeah, stage. Yeah, yeah. And then the audience is around it the entire way around. It's almost like being in a boxing ring to exactly. feel exactly. when you're in it. That's one of the stages. Yeah. And, and then you have two other stages yeah, as well. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So, so the. Other two stages last year were founder stage and then also central stage. So founder stage is basically where we have the founding stories and, and kind of founder stories of different entrepreneurs and also some investors and kind of the main keynotes. And then we also have central stage, which is another stage where the audience is basically all around the stage and, and that is focused on, on slightly different types of content. And I remember you had
0: Mark Pincus, who is a
1: founder of Zynga there yeah. last
0: year, and Did you happen to see that one or do you have a favorite founder story that you've heard?
1: Um, I actually, I actually hadn't, I didn't have time to check out Mark's, Mark's speech, but I think one of the kind of favorite speeches that I've, I've seen slush, um, I have to actually probably say that I really like Seth Bannon's speech from, from 50 years. So, so, so what 50 years does is that they have an impact focused uh, VC fund based here in, here in Bay Area and, and Seth and LR the co-founders and they have both been this last quite a few times and I, I think what they're building is, is something extremely interesting. And what they talk about, so why did it move you, his talk? Um, I think the interesting part about or the like whole mission mission of, of 50 years and also some of the data they have been, have been able to collect is that like if you're a venture capitalist uh, it makes sense to not only aim for profit, but also aim for positive impact because people and, and talent is basically attracted to companies which also have a positive impact in, in addition to just like purely seeking for profit, which makes those companies more profitable because of the impact factor.
0: That it's a positive uh,
1: success spiral. Exactly. So to speak. Exactly. It it's builds like on itself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think, well, yeah, I think it just feels that Seth is super. Super motivated about the about the mission of the company, and, and he seems extremely well-organized as well.
0: Who are some of the other speakers you've had that you're particularly proud of?
1: Um, I guess the kind of most notable names would be Al Gore, um, Vinod Kosla, um, Mark Pinkus, as you mentioned, um, Katerina Fake, Hemantanesha, um, Rich Wong. Um, and and quite a few others as well. And who's been your favorite
0: speaker overall? Oh, that's actually interesting. It's like like you know, be uh, it's a little dangerous to ask that question because yeah, you yeah. probably love you know, it's like every you asking a parent which of their children. Yeah, they yeah. love. But what T-
1: what? To be honest, I I personally don't like too too much about kind of ranking aspect of our speakers. I think they all all have kind of different ideas and 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 they highlight different things. So so there's definitely quite a few few really good ones in the group. So what really spoke to you? Put it differently.
0: One that stepped out for you said, wow. I mean, you talked mm. a little bit about Seth Bannon.
1: Yeah, yeah. To be honest, like last year at Sloss, I had time to watch only the Al Gore's opening speech. And all the other speeches that i watched, I've basically watched the recording. So we also have a live stream of the conference. And then also we... We have, have the keynotes on, on YouTube. So it gives you a bit different wipe when you watch it later because you're not there physically or, or you, don't, you don't get the same wipe. But I have to say that the Al Gore's opening speed definitely gave me chills as well. So how do you run something like that
0: where you have these 20,000 attendees, all these different groups that you have, and I think it's around 40 people in the organization? Yes. The actual
1: slush organization. How on earth do you run a conference that size with 40 people? Um, so that's actually a question that we were not even ourselves like fully confident to answer so so, <laughs> so 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 it's it's kind of like organized chaos so basically we we each year kind of start from from nothing so so we we basically question everything we've done so far and and consider if we should do the same things or if we should drop something out if we should do something new and and so on and at the beginning of the year, the team is basically a bit under 30 people. And then it slightly increases. So, so now, in, now in May, we are around 40 people. And then actually during the main event in, in December or early December this year, so the days are going to be 4th and 5th of December, we have over 2,000 volunteers. And I oh, would wow. say, say that the volunteers are kind of the backbone of the whole conference. Do
0: these tend to be students or who, who are these volunteers?
1: Yeah. So basically the volunteers are, are students. And they, they come not only around Finland, but also from other Nordic countries and also from other parts of Europe. And some people have actually said that they've come on exchange in Finland just to be volunteers at Slush.
0: And is it an opportunity to effectively come for free and also have an opportunity to meet people in a way you might not meet them any other way?
1: Exactly. That's that's pretty pretty well put. So basically, the the whole concept or the whole, whole entrepreneurship society in, in Helsinki and, and and in different major cities in Finland, is more or less student-run. So basically the students, basically, um, so they tend to be volunteers for a few years, and then they might take more responsibility. So for example, I was a volunteer first for three years before working full-time with Slush.
0: So a lot of people like to go to conferences to learn something
1: new. Yeah. And
0: with the scale of Slush, three stages running simultaneously, an enormous convention center internally, What's the best way to go as an attendee? How do you prepare for something like that to make the most of it?
1: So I would say it depends a bit on what kind of attendee you are. So basically the the main groups are investors, startups, and then executives. And then also we have some students, some researchers, and, and some media representatives. But let's say you're, for example, a startup founder, and you're planning to raise your next round of financing in a few months. Then I would say that the best way to get most out of slush would be to go through... Um, so we have our, our in-house built matchmaking tool. So you can basically book meetings with uh, all the investors attending. And so I would recommend going through the investor list and basically reaching out to the ones that are most potential investors, uh, right stage, right industry. And this and is prep in advance. That exactly. Exactly. Okay. So you should definitely do this in advance. Um, you can basically send out quite a, quite a bit of uh, invites to the matchmaking or through the matchmaking tool before the event. And then you're going to basically have back-to-back meetings for two days. And then other preparation, in addition to being well-prepared with the meetings, is to check out the different side events that are most interesting to you. So in addition to the main event, we have around 300 side events taking place all around Helsinki during this last week. How do you coordinate all that? So basically the side events are, are not fully coordinated by us. So, so what, what we do with them is basically we, we offer a platform where they can say that like we host a side event and, and like it, it's basically listed on our site. With some of the side events, we we help them to find a suitable venue and and are kind of co-hosts or co-operators. But most of them are are completely independently organized. And when you talk about these tools and
0: preparing for it, how far in advance do people start to do that? So they know the event. The event runs for roughly a week. Yeah. How far in advance of that? A week or two in advance? Do people start to use the tools So month so typically,
1: typically, the matchmaking tool opens around a month or, or three weeks op- uh, before the event. So that's, that's basically the best time to start preparing. Uh, some people start preparing a week before, and that's, that's usually fine as well. Some people don't prepare at all, and they, they usually get a bit less out of, out of the week. So the
0: prep is really key. Yeah, it's If you think about investing your time, you should do the work in advance on the prep Exactly, side. exactly. So what's your role? with slush
1: yeah so basically i'm taking care of the investor side so as i mentioned we had last year a bit over 1500 investors attending my job is to get those people to helsinki and make sure they have the most valuable few days they can possibly have so you're taking care
0: of that constituency so to speak yeah and when you look at slush itself as a business how does the business work
1: so basically we are um so the how does it work is is we have partners and then we have ticket revenue the interesting interesting um fact is that we're actually a not-for-profit event so even though we're a limited company we're owned by uh, by a foundation called startup foundation uh which by by finnish law is is not seeking for profit so Slush doesn't need to maximize ticket revenue or partnership revenue, which basically means that we can focus on the most essential part, which is helping the next generation of founders forward.
0: Oh, that's pretty remarkable. So it fits in with what you were talking about with one of your favorite or most impactful speakers you saw recently, Seth Bannon, talking about these multiple goals that you would have. It's it's interesting because then you have the ticket revenue and the sponsor revenue and these pieces allow you to put it together and have something that can have a real impact on the entrepreneurial community.
1: Yeah, exactly. And one kind of interesting thing that, that is, is particular about SLUS is that it's kind of a grassroots movement. So, so it's basically started by the entrepreneurs for the entrepreneurs. And, and that same grassroots movement has actually also started in Singapore, Shanghai and Tokyo, where we have global SLUS events. So they are a bit smaller ones still. So they're basically between three and five thousand attendees. But they're also they're run by local teams. Um, but we kind of have some some help, for example, in the marketing side. That we we coordinate globally, but otherwise they're like fully independent teams and, and tackling the problems that the local entrepreneurship ecosystem faces.
0: So what's the equivalent of winter in Tokyo? If you're I, I don't picking know. a really rough time of year to be somewhere.
1: Uh, actually, I think in Tokyo they actually did it the opposite way, and they they have the event when when the cherry blossom trees. Or oh, and it's blossom. really beautiful. Famous exactly. for being beautiful, there. Yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: So, when you look at Slush, do you have some success stories that have come out of it, where there are some startups that made connections or launched over time? Yeah, that's over an the that history of
1: Slush. So, so we have. Last year, for example, we had a bit over six thousand meetings booked through the matchmaking tool. Wow. So so we don't have like full fully aggregate data of all the investment that has happened through SLUS. But some of the interesting interesting um encounterings and, and connections that have been made at SLUS um, are, for example, when M Files met Partek and, and later raised a their round of 33 million euros. Our other ones are when Memphis Meet met with DFJ and raised around where also Richard Branson and Bill Gates participated. Um, and then there's a, a few smaller ones. For example, a Finnish company called Kanatu met their uh, investor at Slush and ended up raising 12 million euros. And, and you also have involvement from some very
0: successful Finland companies. Yeah. So I first heard about Slush from Peter Vestabeka, who's yeah. one of the founders, as you know, of yeah. Rovio Angry Birds, which pretty much everyone in the world has heard of. Is a Helsinki company.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Maybe
0: that would be a good segue. And if you're tuning in, I'm Rob Conneybeer, You're listening to Launchpad on SiriusXM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here in the studio right now with Jana Corpella. He's one of the executives running Slush, which is one of the world's largest technology conferences held every year in Helsinki in early December. So, that might be a good segue into the study that you put together called the State of European Technology with Atomico, one of the leading venture capital firms in Europe. Could you share some of the headlines from that study?
1: Yeah. So, basically, as you mentioned, uh, the State of European Tech Report is, is co-produced by us and Atomico, and it's kind of a brief overview of, of talent, uh, tech, and also also companies, and especially tech companies around Europe. Uh, some of the key findings, or, or findings that I find uh, myself super interesting, is for example that, or the key finding would be that the whole year of 2017 was a record year in Europe on several different scales. So, for example, the capital raised by European tech companies um, was record number high. So, or was record high. So there was actually over 19 billion euros, or actually U.S. dollars, invested in European tech companies. Wow. Yeah. That's a big number, and like, what stage is
0: that typically at when you look at that 19, 20 billion euro or little over 20 billion US dollars?
1: Yeah, so, so I would say that like, in terms of stage, of course, like the larger rounds contribute more towards the to sum, but there's also a lot of activity in the earlier stage, and one, one particular industry that I would like to point out is the, is the deep tech industry, so that also grew a lot, and deep tech startups actually Raised over three and a half billion U.S. Now, dollars. And what do you mean by deep tech? Um, so that's that's actually uh, that's an excellent question. I would say that um, in the in the in the study, deep tech is basically consisting of of AI and and blockchain and cryptocurrencies, and then also autonomous driving and few other factors. But I would say that AI and, and crypto are, are perhaps the kind of largest um, parts of, of deep tech companies or or largest, so a lot of you know. these new areas yeah, that exactly. are coming along. Exactly. But one, one way to like define deep tech is that it's something that requires a PhD to understand.
0: Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. Deeply technical. Yeah, hence exactly. Deep tech. Where would you put Skype in that regard? Um one of the it, most famous European
1: startups. You mean like is Skype a deep tech company or that Yes, exactly. I would say I wouldn't say perhaps the Skype is a deep tech company, but they're definitely one of the success stories of, of Europe. And one interesting in factor about or data point about PhDs is actually that the number of PhDs graduating from STEM fields has doubled from the year two thousand. So last year from Europe there was almost sixty thousand PhDs graduating from STEM fields which is double the amount of PhDs. This is across Europe. Yeah, across Europe, which is double the amount of PhDs graduating uh, in U.S. from STEM fields. So there's actually a lot lot of talent coming, not only in the tech scene, but, but into Europe in general.
0: Yeah, and Skype was founded in Tallinn, which is just across one of the Baltics from Helsinki.
1: Yeah. Yeah, how exactly. far is that?
0: How close is that for people that might not be familiar with the geography there?
1: So I would say it's like around four-hour boat ride, so, so not too far.
0: And a 20-minute flight yeah, if exactly. you actually make the trip, because Estonia is right there. Yeah, it is. It is Okay. So maybe talking a little more about the Nordic tech scene, what's, yeah. what's going on in the Nordic tech scene, and
1: how would you define that? So I would say that Nordic tech scene is also growing a lot. So it's still early days, um, but companies such as Skype, Supercell. Rovio, uh, Spotify with their direct listing happening recently are definitely setting a lot of people um, up for also or the next challenges. So, so we're kind of starting to see the first serial, serial entrepreneurs in the Nordics. So people who have first founded their companies, had some, some initial success, perhaps exited or sold the company and are now, now finding their second ones.
0: Yeah, well, one thing's for sure in terms of building an ecosystem, having serial entrepreneurs that have made a ton of money, had a lot of success. There's a virtual spiral that really gets started there because you have some people that they are ready to share what they've learned with the next generation of entrepreneurs.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and investment-wise in, in Nordics, the number of investments in, in startup companies has actually doubled from, from the year of 2015. So it's definitely, even though it's early days, it's, it's growing fast.
0: What do you think is a major misconception people might have about the Nordic startup scene?
1: Ooh, that's an interesting question. Um, you, you, what if you tell me some of the stereotypes and I tell you if they're true or not?
0: <laughs> well, just jump in. Maybe talk about the things that you see
1: hmm, that you so really
0: like about it. Because you come out here. you are spent two weeks out here in Silicon Valley. You've been meeting with hundreds of people while you're out here getting ready for next year's conference. Yeah. What are maybe some of the contrasting things you've seen?
1: I would say that like one interesting point is that like the universities in, in Nordic countries are actually quite a high quality, even though they are not that high in the university rankings. So for example, I have a few friends who have studied both in ALDE University and in Stanford, and and some of them mentioned that the quality of teaching is actually better in ALDE University than in Stanford. But of course Stanford has the reputation and the connections that that are, are definitely remarkable. So it sounds like
0: the entrepreneurs are extremely well trained. Yeah. Yeah. And to a certain extent they may come out with a humility based on they don't have some logo that people understand, but they have the real knowledge and the hunger. It's interesting when I think about entrepreneurial ecosystems because I do wonder sometimes whether warm or cold is better Ooh. for people to work hard. So when you think about the winters out in California that are relatively mild versus the winters in the Nordic countries, are just they're a little colder.
1: Yeah, they are. A little say, darker. I would say cold is actually better because like, if it's sunny and hot outside – you, you don't want to work. But if it's cold and, and, and dark outside, you rather stay inside, and then you can basically take out your laptop and start coding.
0: Because there's nothing else to do, and exactly. then you make enough
1: money to be able to fly somewhere warm.
0: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So when you take a look at where the Nordic countries are going with entrepreneurship, what are the best
1: industries?
0: Where are the best opportunities that are very Nordic-specific?
1: I would say that gaming is, is something that is super super typical to to point out from the nordics because of of supercell rovio uh next games and and few other success stories um in addition to gaming uh there's a lot of fintech companies coming for example isettle klarna and and these ones and then also lately i would say that ai and, and and crypto that was both previously mentioned are also also rising
0: you're only 24 now yeah but you actually have a pretty interesting history before that. You grew up in a small Finnish town, I believe.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What it's was
0: the name of the town?
1: So, in Finnish, it would be called Juvascula. So, it's a small town in central Finland. Okay. And when people, for you, it's central Finland. Yeah.
0: But for people that are thinking about Santa Claus up in the North Pole, the Arctic Circle, where you
1: have areas that get dark,
0: how close is it to the Arctic Circle and how far north of Helsinki is it?
1: So from Helsinki, it's around three hours of driving, so a bit over 300 kilometers. And to Arctic Circle from Uvascula I would say that it's perhaps around seven, eight hours of driving. So not. So you're far. well on your way. So it sounds exactly. like where you have the five hours of daylight in Helsinki,
0: you probably had, what, three hours of daylight in the winter? Four? Yeah, around four Perhaps on
1: the like shortest days. So you grew up there. Yeah. And did you travel much growing up? Um not too much. We did some road trips to Nordic countries and, and a few overseas trips but but not too much. So
0: you grew up in this town. How big was the town?
1: A bit over hundred thousand inhabitants.
0: And was it pretty flat or were you in the mountains? Or? Um
1: it, it it there's no mountains but there's hills.
0: Okay. Yeah. There are hills. So you could do sledding and stuff like exactly. that. Exactly. You could uh, do okay.
1: skiing, snowboarding and interesting stuff.
0: And you grew up in this town, went to high school
1: there? Yeah, exactly. Did you have a startup at all, Um, first startup? We had a company, so I started my own, or our first company when I was 16, so we started filming skiing videos on the streets, so basically I had a few friends who were quite good at free skiing, and I liked to film film videos and, and take photos, so we ended up doing kind of weird handrails and jumps on the streets, and then basically published the videos online, got some sponsors and, and a few million views, and we're actually still doing that around one weekend a so month. So when you say street skiing, yeah,
0: would, you, would, you, would it be like water skiing where somebody would be driving a car with studded tires, and then you'd have a tow rope and people would be behind it? Or is this different skiing?
1: So sometimes there is a car pulling the speed, but most often it's just like a hill where you get the speed, and then you do like a handrail or a jump or a wall ride or something. Kind of like skating or skateboarding, but with skis. And
0: were you one of the skiers? Did you perform as well in these videos? Um,
1: I'm actually the filmer and director, and I'm not that good in skiing, so, so I got the role behind the camera.
0: So what was the moment when you were 16 that you decided to start filming them, and then you started to think, there might be a business in what I'm doing with filming, filming my friends?
1: So, so basically how it started was that um, the guys were... were quite good in skiing and they were they were quite young still back then and they were friends from the local ski hill and i had filmed some all all sorts of videos like parkour videos and other short films before that and then we basically just like decided that hey we should actually try out to make creative skiing videos together and then right after the first season we we got uh, some views and then ended up having our first sponsors and and founded the company and so on so
0: what were you shooting the video with
1: um i think back then it was it was actually we, we had a decent camera. I think it was actually Canon Five D Mark II. Ah, okay. So yeah. this
0: is uh, probably a thousand dollar, two yeah, yeah, thousand exactly. dollar camera. Yeah, with yeah. It was very actually, high quality
1: lens. It was actually my brother's camera, so that helped.
0: Oh, so you borrowed that. Yeah. So you were really careful not to. I'm guessing you you used the neck strap. Yeah, exactly. When you when you wore it, because it's probably a little slippery when you're outside. Yeah, it is. And did you have to edit these videos? Yeah, yeah. So I did the filming, editing, and, and directing. I think it's pretty interesting well would you say things like don't fall
1: um no higher i i I was using the guy who said like jump higher do more flips and and so on (laughs) okay yeah yeah i just wanted to make it look super good on the video so we we needed more air and how much editing goes into these videos um i would say that if you do like a one five minute video it takes almost a work week of editing yeah.
0: So it's a lot of raw content to get down to something people want to watch for five minutes. Yeah, it is,
1: but it doesn't feel like work, so it's not too bad. How do you learn this? I guess, like, I learn it just simply by doing and, and watching other videos, but I guess if you will, you can also go to good, like, courses or, or study that stuff.
0: And you said this is online now. Yeah.
1: Where exactly. can people find this content? So if you Google Real Skiffy, so Real and then S K I F I. Uh, you can find us on YouTube, Facebook and, and a bunch of other sites. What does that mean, Skiffy? Um, that's actually a good question. So it's kind of a wordplay with skiing and and Finland and then also science fiction. So so the stuff because of the stuff we do is so so creative that it's it's kind of sci-fi of skiing. And when did you realize you started to have an audience around this? I think it was actually around the end of first season. So I think back then we had like Perhaps around hundred thousand views per episode or like fifty thousand views per episode, which was a lot more than what we have anticipated for. I always
0: wonder was something like that. Was there something you did on the distribution side or was it purely great
1: content? I would say that like the the key to success for us was that we did we didn't do stuff that others other skiers couldn't do, but we we're filming stuff that other skiers don't even imagine of doing. So, oh. it, so it's like really creative. There, there can be like skateboards or or like sleds or like jumping ropes or, or like basketballs, like in addition to just skis. And it's it's kind of like a circus.
0: And do you sit around, it's Friday afternoon, you're having beers, and then you're thinking about what could we use that hasn't been used before in a video like this? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much how it goes. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. So you did that and then you've also served in the finnish military
1: yeah exactly so we have mandatory military service in finland so so right after high school i spent a year there and and did the air force thing
0: and was that boot camp so you you showed up and you show up at boot camp and they shave your head and they so so you learned to take orders or yeah, how yes. does that
1: work so I'm actually, like, like, yeah, the beginning is kind of like a boot camp, so you train a lot, like, the basic stuff and, like, how to use a gun and how to spend time in the forest and how to march and how to run and how to tie your shoelaces and, and these, these basic rules of life. Uh, but the second half of the year, we actually spent just, like, learning how to fly a small airplane. And is this something that, when you,
0: when you think about the Finnish culture in general, does everybody go through the military?
1: So every every man has to go through it, and, and women can go through it voluntarily if they want to.
0: Yeah, I think it's something that's pretty interesting in the U.S. that people don't think about as much because we've had voluntary service here for so long relative yeah. to, I believe, a lot of European countries have compulsory service at some point.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think a lot of European countries have had the compulsory service, but I think now it's, it's only a few that has okay. still have it.
0: Yeah, and, and one of the things when you think about entrepreneurial ecosystems, places like Israel, for example, have compulsory military service. And you have a lot of people that go through and they learn about online security and crypto and a lot of this. Do you, Does that have an impact on the Finnish startup scene that a lot of people have gone through compulsory military service?
1: I would say that the, uh, the largest impact that it has is probably that you meet a lot of interesting people so for example with the air force group we were we were kind of like selected already and, and gone through a funnel so so basically e- everyone from that group are, are really good friends of mine and and are kind of like ha- have the same mindset towards life
0: so if you're just tuning in i'm rob connie and you're listening to launchpad on sirius xm 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, here in the studio right now with Yana Corpella. He is one of the executives running Slush, a massive technology conference held every year in Helsinki in early December. Well, I'm guessing for people that have just come out of high school going to military service, if you're flying, you're probably a pretty responsible person.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: there is a bit of a selection process with your compatriots that also learned to fly.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think, like, at our year, there was probably around 900 people who applied to the Air Force pilot thing, and then around 35 got accepted. And what do you fly? So the plane is called Vinca. Um, it's, it's pretty much similar to, like, Cessna. Okay. But you can do, like, loops and other stuff with it.
0: Whoa! So you learned to do aerobatics? Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly.
0: This does not sound like what a lot of people think military service might be like, unless you're in the the air force.
1: Yeah, to be honest, I didn't even thought that it's gonna be like that before I realized that it's an like actual opportunity for me. So you got through that, and then you ended up in a university? Yeah, exactly. So after the military service, I I moved to Helsinki and started studying in Aalto University, which is the university that has the technical side and also the business school and also art school combined. And what does the setting look like, in the university or in the campus? I would say it's it's pretty relaxed. So there's a, the funny thing is actually that like um, the technical school, or there were, used to be three different universities, and the technical school is kind of the main campus. So so that's called, or, or the, it, there's a like funny name in it, it for Finnish, and then basically. That's where all the technical students study, and and there. Oh, is, is it
0: like a nickname for it? Yeah, it's like go- a
1: good Does it translate at all? No, I I don't know. It- or you <laughs> you're afraid it might not be appropriate for radio? <laughs> no, let us just say that I don't I don't know the word in English. Okay, <laughs> but it is kind of goofy when you hear it for yeah, the first yeah. time. Yeah, so it yeah has exactly. Some character. exactly.
0: How big is it overall?
1: Um, I think in all the universities, there's probably something between ten and twenty thousand students. So it's enormous.
0: Yeah, it's getting really quite big. big spot. Okay. Yeah. And how did you get into starting wave ventures because it's related to the university as I understand?
1: Um, yeah, so basically how it all started was that the, we spotted this article from TechCrunch that there was like a university or student-run um, venture capital fund founded in Utah and basically after after a few months after reading the article we we basically decided that okay we we need to do the same thing because that's absolutely like extremely interesting and, and magnificent thing to do so then basically we just collected some some stud- students from the same same faculty so i'm studying industrial engineering and management so so some of my peers from that that group um so we basically got together and, and just started doing it when you say we who saw this TechCrunch article? Did you come across it and then that was the spark? So the, there was actually an older student from, from our faculty that linked the article to Facebook. And then Andreas, one of the co-founders of Wave Ventures, commented on that article that, hey, we need to do this. Who's on board? And then a few month, months afterwards, we, we started building the thing.
0: So it really was a spark that ignited this this fire. Yeah, Somebody exactly. posting on social media, come across, then people get together. And where did the funding come from?
1: So basically, the limited partners of the fund are Finnish entrepreneurs, uh, some Finnish VCs, and a few international entrepreneurs and, and family offices as well. So
0: it goes back to what you were talking about on the first segment, where you have folks from, say, Rovio or Supercell or any of these successful companies. They make enough money where it's relatively easy for them to come in as limited partners with smart students and fund this.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. How do you pitch them? How does that? Oh that's an excellent question. I haven't done it in like one and a half years, but I would say that like the, the key elements of the pitch are that um, so basically as a student from VC fund you have the access to the earliest cases that basically are funded from the university uh, or like funded by the university students and then you could also argue that as a student you or as a young person you have a better hunch of the consumer applications and technologies that are going to be successful in the future compared to let's say a 50, 55 years old old vc
0: so is that the pitch
1: um did you put a, it
0: together on a powerpoint deck or did you we, use some other software yeah we have we had a powerpoint deck okay yeah yeah who is the
1: powerpoint jockey on your team um i think it was actually like a like a group effort okay yeah yeah but to be honest i've done uh one consulting internship with Bain and company so i i I, I put an effort in it as well. Oh,
0: so you were pretty integral. Yeah. <laughs> in putting the deck and the story together. Yeah. So yeah. you put it together, you say we have access to this, we're going to see things early.
1: Yeah. So so basically the like the key was was like because of slush we had the network to um, investors and LPs and, and kind of the so, so the key elements was the like how do we get the deal flow, how do we structure it so that it can stay student run. So so the idea is that we change the management team around every other year and and how do we make the investment decisions and like how much do we invest and how do we kind of collaborate with the local angels and local VCs in the Nordic ecosystem and like basically just like while we were we were pitching to potential LPs we were also kind of like recruiting them as our potential co-investors and also follow-on investors so we, so, so you're we,
0: building that ecosystem yeah exactly that must have been interesting doing that because there aren't really that many student led efforts to do that you have some things like i believe First round has the dorm fund and you have some of these, these different efforts, but to get that started is pretty unusual, especially because you have the turnover and
1: who's running it
0: every year. How do you handle that? How do you decide who's going to be the students picking companies the next year?
1: Um, So basically we've, Set it up, or we had the launch in in February in 2017, so we're gonna change the team around the beginning of 2019. So it's happening right now, so exactly, it's early. So, so I cannot yet say how it will go, but hopefully, we'll find a team that is um, a lot better than we are.
0: And when you look at it, probably what are the
1: most famous companies you've backed so far? Um, I would say that, um some of the interesting ones are, are Block. So Block is a company founded by Slas Alumni. So they just raised a follow-on on round from, from Lifeline Ventures and Bonnier Ventures. So they're doing basically automatization for, for home, home selling process. So that they got they out the real estate agent. Um, based in Finland? Yeah, based in Helsinki, Finland. And Helsing is it focused
0: Finland. on the Finnish market or um, Nordics? So, or? so
1: they are now, now currently um, live on the Finnish market, but they are definitely expanding soon.
0: So what's the hardest part about building a firm like that? A small student firm? Is it finding the time? Is it finding the opportunities?
1: I would say that like the hardest part was like actually figuring figuring out like how can we do it and then kind of getting the courage that like okay let, let's do this. Like this actually needs to be done. That was the hardest part. Yeah, I would say yeah, yeah. I would say that was actually the hardest part. Like of course it's it's hard to find find good companies and hard to make decisions as well, but it, it didn't, or it doesn't seem as hard as the like, initial steps were. What was the biggest surprise or
0: what have you learned about venture capital from building this small early stage fund?
1: I would say that what, what surprised me is the, is the importance of the team and, and especially the team dynamics and, and how, how motivated they are, how, how committed they are and how well do they play together. Because, like, oftentimes when you hear about the company, you just, like, hear what they do, what's the business model, and so on. But, like, since we invest in super early states, the the team is actually a lot more important because the company may end up pivoting a few times.
0: Did you figure that out through advice or did you figure that out through perhaps some decision-making challenges you might have had early on? Or what was the um, dynamic that you it, really it, learned that lesson
1: so, so like it's definitely something that our advisors had told us before, but it's something that I had also realized firsthand with some of our portfolio companies and some of the deals that we have have screened
0: yeah, it's definitely hard to see like when you start meeting with people and then you start to try to figure out how how motivated are they really, how driven are they really exactly and one of the things we think about a lot a chest is in talking about the product and talking about the company that's actually how we get to know the people better
1: yeah it so is. even though
0: it we're is. talking about the company talking about the market we're actually getting to know the people
1: yeah yeah that's the beauty of it it's like killing two birds with one stone and one also one one really interesting factor is that is the team and especially the ceo coachability so so how well they can receive advice from from others what
0: what does coachability mean? That's that's a phrase that seems to
1: be thrown around. Well, I don't know. I like I don't does know it what's really the coachability mean. Yeah. I, I would say that coachability means that you you kind of have a growth mindset and and you don't have too big of an ego to take advice from others and, and you're willing to do what's best for the company and not what is your idea necessarily in the first place. So you mentioned Bain. Yeah. What was your experience at Bain and company?
0: the management consulting firm?
1: So I, I had a good experience. So I, I basically, I went there after, after my second year of studies. On the second day, they flew me to Norway. Uh, I did a few due diligence cases. The first one was a public, for, for a publicly traded company, and the other one was for a private equity fund. So it was, it was intense, but I learned a lot. Okay. And that was your experience with Bain.
0: and maybe just looking forward, how did you actually connect with the slush folks? So, you, was it because of the venture fund or was it predating that?
1: So basically, my first connection to SLUS was actually on my freshman year. So I started studying in 2014 and I was on the first fall of my studies. I went and was a volunteer at SLUS. So I was actually a volunteer. Oh, you were one of these 2,000 people. Exactly. Back then it was not as many, but, but still. So I was a volunteer actually for the first three years and then now now this is my second year working full time with SLUS.
0: Did they tap you on the shoulder somehow? Great work. We like you. We like what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. How did it make that shift to becoming somebody that they fly around the world to talk to
1: investors? Ooh, that's something that I wonder myself as well sometimes. But I, I guess it's just like if you if you saw the commitment, the right right attitude and are are just like eager enough to do it then. But it was
0: literally a tap you on the shoulder type thing. Hey, have you thought about doing this full-time? Yeah, pretty much. Are you willing to travel?
1: Yeah, yeah. I I was. (laughs) So here I am. And how long has it been full-time now? So this is my second year working full-time. Second year, okay.
0: Okay. And what's been your biggest
1: surprise
0: about making that shift from being a volunteer, doing it once a year, to it being
1: your job? I would say that the biggest surprise has probably been that importance of personal relationship with the people who who we want to keep close with slush i would say that's probably something that like that i had realized only only when working full time that is that that's actually the core of slush like like you one way to see slush is that we're kind of a matchmaking system and and we do that by our, our organizing events around the world and and the Helsinki one being the largest so far so so i think that it's the connections are the ones that and when you say
0: that, do you mean the connections that Slush makes among the different constituents and attendees that come, whether they're speaking or whether they're corporates or whether they're entrepreneurs? Or do you mean within the Slush organization itself, you and other people that you work with?
1: I, w- I would say it's both. So, so definitely the team dynamic within Slush is extremely important. It's also the network of the people who work at Slush and then also the network that we're able to to create within our attendees, and I would say that, or, or one way to formulate SLASH is like, if, in addition to being a conference for for the visitors, it's kind of a human accelerator for the people who work for SLASH. So so there's not too many places where you can get so so much responsibility at such a young age and and meet meet interesting or as interesting people as through SLASH. So what have you seen so far? We've got
0: about three minutes here or two minutes what advice do you have for people that might be about four or five years behind you thinking about their careers and what they should focus on i would early say on?
1: i would say that like from the mindset perspective i would say that like getting a growth mindset versus fixed mindset is something that is extremely good to acknowledge so basically uh, if there's something you don't know or you don't you don't know how to do, is it basically just means that you haven't practiced enough. So it doesn't mean that your your like inherited skills aren't good enough. Um, I would say that's one thing. Otherwise, I would just say that like do whatever you feel passionate about and what motivates you, and and that's something. That's great advice. Yeah, that's something that keeps you going through the night as well. I
0: think that second piece is really interesting because people there are different types of people when they're moving on or moving through their careers. And there are some people that think about where's the money going to be? What's the big hot area? I need to get into the hot area. And then there's another group of people and they're almost distinct that they're just passionate about something. And then the magic happens when you're passionate about something and then it becomes hot almost shortly after you go into
1: it. Exactly. Actually, that's the ideal scenario I would say. And, and like the whole whole kind of, as I mentioned, the whole startup ecosystem in Helsing is more or less student-run. So it acts kind of a student and volunteer run. So it, it acts kind of a field as a filter so that the people who are only looking for the short-term benefit, for example, in, in monetary terms, they don't end up being at Slash because they don't get the monetary benefit. So the people who end up there are, are usually passionate about the real cause of helping founders forward and perhaps starting their own companies in future.
0: Okay. And... Obviously, you're a big fan of the Nordic startup scene. When you look outside the Nordics, and let's not talk about, say, the U.S., what startup area do you
1: really admire?
0: Got ooh, about that's kind of a
1: 45-second ooh, answer. That's an excellent question. I would say, um, based on the places that I've visited, I would say that London is definitely interesting. So, Interesting. So I guess that's a pretty obvious choice from a European perspective, but there's a lot of stuff happening there. And I would say that, like, e- like it's just crazy how how many companies and how many VCs they have compared to other other main European cities. So, if you were to pick the two areas in Europe, people should take a close
0: look at. Obviously, the Nordics. Yeah. And London is another great place as well. Yeah,
1: I would say London, Berlin, and Nordics would be a really good trio.
0: Okay. Well, great. Well, thanks again for joining me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And thanks for the invitation. It was my pleasure. And for people that want to learn about Slush, where should they go? Slush.org. Slush.org. Very simple. And I'm sure the website is optimized for people to learn all about it, just regardless of what constituency yes, they from. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Well, great. Well, thanks again.
1: For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.